turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Well, I hope you've had an enjoyable Thanksgiving time. That's certainly been the case for me and my family. And it's really good to be able to just kind of hang out and see you this morning and just take time to worship the Lord. If I had only 30 minutes to train up uh, spiritual leaders, whether it be parents or pastors, missionaries, people involved in some sort of ministry in a church, I would take and select 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You cannot do better than this chapter. It explains in detail what does it look like when you are moved by the gospel, when you are embracing Christ, when you are abiding in him and you're looking to invest in other people. And that is a question I think a lot of us ask. What does loving people from the heart really look like? How do you really even grow as a relational leader? I tell you, just as a pastor, I have the privilege of just kind of being around and just being, just kind of checking out and seeing what God is doing. And, and you see it. You see it in like small group leaders. You see it in women's Bible studies. You ever been here on a Wednesday night? You see like all these people and they're just pouring into all these kids of all ages. And you got youth leaders that are just investing in junior high and high school kids. And you got man to man. And you got folks that are just pouring into the lives of others. And it's, it's like, wow. How cool is this? These are difference makers. I get to be in the same church as them. It's really cool. And then if you want to know like how you could be a better friend or a better spouse, like just take a look at what you find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, if you want to know how, what it looks like to love people well, if you want to be growing instead of stagnating in terms of being a relational leader, This passage tells you how it's done. Let me just ask you before we begin, how are you doing as a relational leader? Where are you at? Are you you growing and taking next steps? Stagnating? Uh, Falling apart? Uh, Needing improvement? Are you suffering? All of us, all of us really want to know, how is it that we could be a person of spiritual influence? How could we make these investments? How is it that we participate in the work of the kingdom of God? And let me tell you, Beginning in verse 17, these final verses in chapter 2, they spell it out with amazing detail. The traits of a growing relational leader, they're spelled out. Let me give you the first one and find it in verse 17. And that is, you need to be engaging with love and eagerness. Look at verse 17. Paul writes, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. We, you see how it says we, it's not just Paul. Ministry is always done best in community. We're better together. And Paul says, this is how we entered into your life. The we is speaking of the manner in which Christ moves and develops and engages people. He does it through his people and his people together. And he says, it is we, we came to you, and he refers to them as brethren, as like fellow family members. We, we wanted to be with you. We really desired to get back, but we couldn't. In fact, he's going to tell us in verse 18 that we were actually hindered from doing so. But notice the eagerness and the love that he's expressing. Friends, that's how you and I see Christ at work, especially in our relationships. When the other person can sense that there's a, like the text says, a great desire, that there's an eagerness to actually be with you. 
for Paul and his team, it wasn't like, hey, out of sight, out of mind. You know how that works, right? I don't see you, so I don't ever think about you. But that's not how it worked for him and his team. They loved these people, and they wanted to be with them. It's really interesting when you read through the New Testament and the, and the letters that Paul writes. Just do this. Next time you do that, note how often Paul actually expresses in words his longing, his desire, and his love for the people that he's been ministering to. Like, I'll give you a great uh, case in point. Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. So before they came to Thessalonica, remember, they were in Philippi. They had been abused. They got beaten, got thrown in prison, put in stocks. Remember, that was all unpleasant. They eventually had to leave town. But when he writes to the Philippians, listen to what he said about them. Chapter 1, verse 7. He says, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Isn't that something? Since both in my imprisonment and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's kind of like 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. When you and I learn to love people from the heart because of our relationship with Jesus, friends, that's how we really grow as a relational leader. In fact, if you can't do this, or better yet, you will not do this, you're going to find your ability to be a person of spiritual influence in your home, in this church, in the community, at school, at work, to be severely limited because ministry moves forward because of love. It oftentimes gets expressed, expressed by eagerness. Effectiveness engaging pe- people from the heart begins with love. What a difference ministry and life makes when it comes from the heart. If you want to grow as a relational leader, like the text we see here, you need to be engaging with love and eagerness. And let me give you a second. You need to learn how to endure difficulties. Look at verse 17. Paul writes, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. That word taken away, uh, that you find that in verse 17, that was used of like an orphan. Someone who had been ripped away from their family. Paul says, I feel that strongly about you. But we were unable. We had a significant hardship that prevented us from coming to you. In fact, he even names him Satan. You see that? Verse 18, he hindered us. You know what the word Satan means? The name means Satan? You know what it means? It means adversary. It's the adversary of God. If you're like, you know, I'm just kind of trying to figure out who is the Satan let me just tell you, give you a little background. Satan is a created being, an angelic being, apparently a place of great uh, preeminence. Not God. In fact, that's what bothered him. He wanted to be like God. He, he wanted to have God's position. And it was this arrogance and this pride that leads him from being cast out. And not only does he go, but he's able to successfully lead other angelic beings with him. We might refer to them as demons. And though he can never take the place of God, and he is not God, he does not have the qualities of omniscience and omnipresence, he makes life really difficult. He is always the adversary and the enemy of God. You find this all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. He takes the form of a serpent, and he deceives Adam and Eve. 
He convinces them, oh, you know what? God's holding out on you. He gets them to disregard God, to disobey his word. In fact, he always does that. Satan knows that he's defeated because with the coming of Christ, the eternal son of God enters into humanity. He lives a completely righteous life. He dies on a cross and he rises again to overcome sin, death, hell, and Satan. And Satan knows that he's defeated. He's, he's read the rest, the rest of the book. He knows what happens in the end, just like we do. But that doesn't keep him from continually bringing about destruction in Christians' lives. He can't take away your eternal life because when does eternity end? It doesn't. But he can rob you of your joy. In fact, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what Jesus said. And he does. He robs you. Maybe he doesn't take your money. Maybe he does. Maybe you waste it. But he takes away joy, the the understanding of the beauty of the gospel, of being with Jesus, his presence, his forgiveness, his life. He is a master at bringing about this kind of destruction. And so he says, you know what? We were hindered. We really wanted to come to you. The word hinder there comes from the, the military, and it was the practice of like tearing up a road to making that road impassable for an army. So if it had stones, they'd flip all the stones, they'd create barriers, or if it was, there was a bridge, they would blow the bridge up or create some sort of barrier to preventing an army moving forward. When he uses the word hinder, that's what's being referred to. It's like this roadblock. We don't know if it was just the hostility of the Jews that were there in Acts 17 that we saw that put the run on him. We don't know if it was the pledge that Jason made that Jason basically said, listen, I'm going to give you this sum of money. You can have it if these guys ever show back up there. So maybe it was that. All we know is that they were hindered. I will tell you this, that Paul correctly identifies the enemy. We don't know exactly what the problem was. We knew that we were hindered. Remember this, Satan is the real enemy, not the people enslaved by Satan. We can't get this mixed up. People are hard on us. People who are still in darkness, they don't see Jesus. They don't embrace the gospel. You know what they do? They're like in his hand. And, and what happens is we kind of like, they're the enemy. No, they're enslaved by the enemy. That's why they behave that way. And Paul understands this. We're hindered. If you're going to grow as a relational leader, you've got to stay with it. You can't give up. There has to be faithfulness even in the midst of difficulty and hardship. And I can assure you the devil is a master at bringing hindrances. In fact, this morning, I'd like to give you just some of his most potent tools of how he, he always seeks to break down either the growth of a believer or the advancement of the gospel. These tools might sound pretty familiar. They, we could refer to them as the killer D's. I heard Tommy Nelson once refer to them as such. And I've kind of made some amendments and added to them, but let me give you some. One tool that Satan uses, super potent, distractions. It's anything or anyone that keeps Christ from being at the center of your life. And we live in a world that's always distracting us and fragmenting us. And it's, and it's part of a grander scheme to keep you from focusing on Jesus and being involved in his work. Let me give you another. This is one that I'm sure every single one of us is all too familiar with. And that is discouragement. When we lose courage or confidence or enthusiasm for God himself or for the work that he's doing. And we just start kind of 
Check it out. And let me just kind of give you some of the major causes for discouragement. Fatigue, um, frustration, another one, failure. You like, you try something and it doesn't work so well and you fail at it or it doesn't go like the way you think it should go. And say, what? You check out. Never going to do that again because after all, my sense of well-being, uh, my sense of security is the most important thing, or we think that is. And so we just check out. But let me give you another one. Fear. We're afraid. Fear paralyzes people all the time, especially believers. Let me give you another tool that's very potent that Satan uses. And that is disqualifiers. Something that is just going to, like, completely sideline you. Like pride, immorality, in all its various forms that it takes. Greed. And let me give you just one more. Just a bonus one. But one that always Satan seems to want to slip in. And that is doubt. Where you doubt God. You doubt his word. You doubt his faithfulness. And what happens is we just start to move out of circulation. Um, one more that I, I wanted to cover here is disengagement. It's the idea that I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm going to separate from the body of Christ. Or I, you know, I don't need that many Christian friends. Or I really don't need to be involved in a local church. You know, after all, uh, you know, I, it's, it's just I got a busy life. You know, I'm a Christian, so it doesn't really matter. And this kind of thinking, what happens is you start disengaging. And it's kind of like you're an ember. You're meant to be with the other flames. They encourage your heat. They build. There's a, there's a, there's a, um, a synergism that takes place. But you start isolating. And what happens is you start growing cold. What's going on? What's actually one of Satan's most potent tools? These are like killer Ds. But I'll tell you, praise God for the gospel. You know what? Even when we have sinned greatly, even when we've been cool toward God, do you know that we're united with Christ? He always brings forgiveness through his finished work on the cross, and he revives us. His mercies are new every morning. He wants you to know his love and experience his grace and to engage. And if we're going to be a relational leader, we've got to learn how to overcome and endure difficulties. They're going to come. If difficulties sideline you, then you aren't going to be a relational leader because you're not going to be there. You're going to check out. You're going to find something else to occupy your time or your life. You might even consider that an idol has moved in. Certainly wouldn't be the first time that's happened in people's lives. Remember Elijah? Remember when Elijah got all depressed? You know what happened was he, first of all, kind of fried his system. But second of all, he kind of separated himself from all the other righteous ones. And God took care of him and reminded him, Listen, you're not the only one. Friends, make no mistake. There is an enemy to our souls. Though he cannot rob you of your eternal life, he can certainly hinder your development and the advancement of the kingdom of how God might use you. Like, let me give you a verse, a couple of verses. First Peter chapter 5, remember in verse 8, Paul, Peter writes this, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So Satan, he's like just looking for his next meal, his next place to strike devastation. And if you're a Christian, you're a very likely candidate for that. Satan, although uh, he can hinder the work of God, uh, he may be harmful. He's hostile. But know this. He will 
not halt the advancement of the gospel and his word, God's word. You know how I know that? Because Jesus said, I will build my church. And he does so even in the midst of the adversity. And here's something rather fascinating. Paul is writing saying, I really wanted to be with you. I would like to pass this message on. I want to continue to invest in your development. And he goes into some pretty good detail that in chapter 3. But I can't. I'm hindered. There's this roadblock. But here's something that's pretty amazing about the amazing greatness and sovereignty of God. Even though they couldn't come, you know what God did? He says, I'm going to have you write the letters, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And not only will they be in a continual encouragement to the people there, they're going to be food for my people forever. He had scripture written. That's how God works. God is able to do good even in the midst of difficulty because he's sovereign and he's great. And so what we want to do is we need to learn how to endure difficulties if we're going to be a relational leader. And Satan's got roadblocks. Let me just throw some of those that you might be facing. Sexual temptation. Um, false teaching. It seems like Satan's pretty good at getting Christians to believe things that aren't true about God, right? But it comes like, well, they're saying this in the church, or this is a book in a Christian bookstore, or whatever. Let me give you another. Uh, he attacks spiritual leaders. And I'd just like to speak to all of you who are truly trying to invest in your homes, uh, with your kids, maybe you're a grandparent, um, you're involved in a ministry where you're investing in people, whether it's children, youth, college, you're a small group leader, you're taking next steps, you're doing angel tree. You need to know this. There's like a target on your back. There's, there's the enemy that actually sees you're becoming effective. Can't have that. Complacency, cool heart toward God, that's not a problem. We can work with that. As long as I can, Satan thinks I can send you to the grave, can't take your eternal life, but I can basically keep you out of circulation, we're okay. But once you take God seriously, you take investment, you realize that life is not just about your comfort, but it's about the glory of God, then you become dangerous. Paul writes of these experiences. Man, it's, it's, when you're a spiritual leader, at times it feels very lonely. And it's like, it is intense. He writes of these experiences in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. He says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Messenger, angelos, always used of either an angel or a human messenger. He says, this, this person or these people, they kept me from exalting myself. They were a pain. They were like a real thorn in my side, if you know what I mean. But he says, you know, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I'll boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. It's as if God knows, like, yes, you're facing difficulties and hardship, but my power is shown great even through your weaknesses. If you want to be a relational leader, you want to continue to grow as a person of influence, you cannot let difficulties sideline you or stop you. Let me show you something else here. If you want to grow as a relational leader, not only do you want to engage with love and eagerness, or people can tell, but you endure difficulties. But notice verse 19. Be expecting the glory of Christ's return. Look what he says in verse 19. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you... 
in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. What Paul is articulating here is an eternal mindset. It's the perspective that the best is yet to come. It's living in light of Christ's return. He says, who is our hope, our joy, our crown? Is it not even you at the coming of Christ? So you see, like, when he talks about, like, a crown, a crown would be given uh, to, like, an athlete that won. So, for instance, uh, the Greeks believed that the human body was the greatest of creations. And to compete as an athlete was a way to honor a particular god. To win an athletic contest would be, like, super exalting. And so what they would do is if you won, they would take a wreath made out of a plant that was sacred to this particular god. So it would be, like, oak or myrtle or ivy or hopefully not poison ivy, but you never know, okay? And they'd weave it together, right? <laughs> Can you imagine it was poison ivy? You're the victor. And all of a sudden, ah, this is really painful. Okay, but they'd put this on, and it recognized you as a victor, kind of like the gold medal, right? But, like, kings... They kind of function like king priests. They would actually have a crown that was made to to look like the plant of the god that they were honoring in their city. And it would be made of gold. And they would, like, wear it on their head. There's this imperishable wreath. What Paul is saying is, you are our joy, our glory, our crown at the coming of Christ. And so what he's doing is he's always looking forward to, to the coming of Jesus. And his coming, not speaking of a particular point in time, but his over-general coming, when he comes, there's going to be great reward and great joy. You know why? Because you, what God is doing in you, and that we had the privilege of just being a small part of that, that is our joy and our crown and our hope. I want you to know that functioning like a relational leader, one of the most important tools that you can have is vision of what the person could become. Seeing them fully mature in Christ. What does Christian maturity look like? When you're discipling individuals, you're working with your small group, when you're investing in people, yeah, you're going to see shortcomings and problems, but also see possibilities. And what does maturity in Christ look like? And you keep casting that vision. And you work toward that end. It's having an eternal perspective. And that's what Paul is demonstrating here. He's saying, Hey, I see what you're going to become. I see what Jesus is doing in your life. And frankly, it's going to be glorious when Christ returns. Remember, Jesus said at the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 and 13, Jesus said this, Behold, I am coming quickly. I want you to be looking for me. I want you to be working and waiting for me. I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to render every man according to what he has done. And in case you're like, are you serious? Jesus is coming back? He says, listen, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and the beginning and the end, and I reward. And Paul says, man, I cannot wait for that. I am living with an eternal perspective, not just the here and now, but for what God is doing and what it's going to look like when Jesus returns. Oftentimes as Christians, we're just kind of focused on the present. We don't think a lot about Jesus returning. And we do so to our detriment because the best is yet to come. Jesus is going to reward you for what you're doing. What are you doing? Really, what what are you doing? You want to be thinking about that because that's where the rewards are coming. Okay? And so Paul says, you know what? What keeps me moving forward in the midst of all these difficulties? The fact that the Thessalonians had some issues. Don't get me wrong. 
Don't think that the Thessalonians just were like instantly perfect. Eh, No. In fact, he's going to address some pretty difficult stuff in chapters 4 and 5. They had problems. Like, notice how much text is given to sexual immorality. They weren't perfect. They had a perfect Savior. And Paul sees what they are becoming. That's why he is looking forward to Jesus' return. You know, that text in 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, where it talks about the devil prowling about like a roaring lion? The very next verse, in verse 10, it says this. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And Paul says, I'm living for this. I'm living for his return. And that's, frankly, what made him such an effective relational leader. He saw not just what was happening, but what could become. And he was looking forward to the return of Jesus. If you're going to go and grow as a, a relational leader, these are the traits that we need to be growing in. Engaging with love and eagerness, enduring difficulties, expecting the glory of Christ's return, and finally, don't miss it, how he ends this chapter. Expressing hope and encouragement. Listen to what Paul is saying and who he's saying it to. Look at verse 19 again. For who, he's asking a rhetorical question, who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Who, okay? Not what, but who. What is it? Is it not even you? You are. In the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming, for you are our glory and joy. He's telling him, not only you are future joy and glory, but he's saying you presently, you presently are our joy and our glory. He is, what he's doing is he's actually expressing his hope and his encouragement, and he's putting it into words. He's writing it down. They would read it over and over again. When he talks about hope, you're our hope, it's kind of like the hope that parents have. See, parents have a hope that their children will grow and mature and be everything that Jesus intended them for to be, to be right? We want our kids to love God, to know him, to use the gifts that he's given them to his glory. We want them to experience the fullness and the best of life, don't we? That is our hope. Paul says, I've got that kind of hope. When he talks about joy, he's like, he sees what God has, is doing. They are not what they used to be, and God is at work. There are our joy, and there are crowns. It's like when Jesus returns, we're, we're not focused on, like, do we get a metal crown? No. He says, you're it. Being there to see the face of Jesus bringing you in, standing before, hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant. Friends, that is my joy. It's not awards. It's not some sort of, like, money or something like that. It's like you. That's what he's expressing. You know, the, remember the song, When We All Get to Heaven? What a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Remember that? We oftentimes think of it this way. We sing we, but we really mean when I, when I show up in heaven, what a great day that's going to be. Isn't it going to be awesome? And I'm going to shout and I'm going to sing the victory. But actually, if you understand the gospel, it's about we, all of us, together. You, you, all of us, when we're together, the person sitting next to you, we're in this together. We all are going to be in the presence of Jesus. And it's going to be glorious. Friends, that's what relational leadership is about. Seeing that I am somehow have a role in the lives of people that are next to me, in my church, in my home, share my last name, in my neighborhood, at my school, at my place of work. When we all get there, and that's what Paul is saying, 
This is the great glory. And so he's telling them, it's right now. And he's expressing these words of encouragement. What do you think it felt like for the Thessalonians to read that? I'll tell you, I have a feeling they kept reading it over and over and over again. How cool is that? You see, it's the power of encouragement. You know, a little bit of encouragement can go a long ways. Uh, There is a 19th century Norwegian composer by the name of Edward Grieg, and he um, wrote a particular piano concerto in A minor that was performed by a guy by the name of Franz Liszt, who was a Hungarian composer and pianist. And at this performance, where Franz Liszt played uh, Grieg's piece, afterwards, he finished it and he gave the score back to him, and he actually passed on these words. We know what he said because uh, Edward wrote back to his parents, and he wrote them a letter of what occurred that night. And let me just read you what part of what he wrote. Finally, and this is Edward Grieg writing about Franz Liszt, as he handed me the score, he said, hold to your course. Let me tell you, you have the talent for it, and don't get scared off. And he writes to his parents, this last is of infinite importance to me. It is almost what I will call a sacred mandate. Time and again, when disappointments and bitterness come, I shall think of his words, and the memory of this hour will have a wonderful power to sustain me in days of adversity. That is my confident hope. That's what these words were for the Thessalonians. Hope, encouragement, like a sacred mandate. And friends, that's what our words can be. A little bit of encouragement can go a long ways. If you want to know, well, what does that look like? It looks like this text. Um, I've had only one occasion in my life where I've actually had the privilege of being involved in a worship service at our church where I was actually going to present the word with my parents and my grandparents here. Um, And for my grandparents, it only happened once. Uh, For those of you who maybe know a little bit of my family background, me being a Christian, especially a pastor, certainly not one of their favorite things, uh, something they don't really like to talk about. And so anytime that they make an occasion where they're actually here, it's a big deal. For my grandparents to be here on a Mother's Day, that that was something I thought would never happen. And so they were sitting right there. And when we finished, you know, went and said hi to them, trying to make them feel comfortable. They weren't feeling overly comfortable. Um... Of course, as per usual, no one said anything, which I expected. But in a moment, just with me and my grandfather, a a guy who had few words, he just said this. That was a pretty good sermon, boy. And I'll tell you what, that that meant so much to me. Didn't come from a home where you didn't say a lot of things like that and, you know, love you and all that sort of stuff. that, That was not where I come from. To hear that from my grandfather, you know how powerful that was? And, of course, later on, he kind of loses his mind and he passes away. And yet that's one of my favorite memories of my grandfather. Friends, you can grow as a relational leader. You can do this. I want you to be thinking, what are some words that you can say? What are some actions that you can take? You know, when your heart is in it, what a difference it is when we are compelled by love. That's what makes you a difference maker. That's what makes you a relational leader because you're engaged with the love of Jesus and you're looking to connect with the other hearts. 
Years ago, I took Karina to a movie called Mr. Holland's Opus. You're like, oh, you know how to show a girl a real good time, huh? What is an opus anyway? It sounds like something should be in a museum or something like that. Well, actually, an opus is like a a great musical work uh, generally done by a famous composer. And Mr. Holland's Opus is about this uh, guy who he's a frustrated composer in Portland, Oregon. He wants to write this great, magnificent piece of work, this opus. But, you know, when you're getting started, you get to pay bills and put some food on the table. And so he has to take a job, and he does take a job as a high school band teacher, but he doesn't give up on the dream. So he, he does the high school band teaching, you know. And like, if you're a teacher, man, they can put you through the paces, especially if you're like a band teacher. I mean, I know. I was in the band. and Okay, let's keep going. Okay, anyway, it, all I'll say is it, it could be a little rough. And at night, he'd come home, and he'd keep working on his opus. But then, you know, with marriage, and they had a son. Their son ends up being deaf. And so there's more and more time taken away from writing this great musical score. And, and uh, yet, you know, he tries to keep at it, and he does. But, you know, there's just a lot of life going on, a lot of life for 35 years. After 35 years, um, the uh, school board has decided that they've got to make budget cuts. And so they opt to actually reduce the operating budget by cutting music and the drama program. We're just, yeah, it's superfluous. We don't really need all that stuff. It's really not going to help them. We're going to cut it. And so Mr. Holland is arguing how important this is and the investments that are being made. And, and what's happened is, you know, his 35 career detours ended up becoming this guy's mission. He's passionate about it. But powers of be said, no, we're cutting it. And uh, I'm sorry, but you're done. Well, School breaks for the summer. A couple days later, uh, Mr. Holland comes in. He's got an older guy now, and his wife and his son are with him. He's putting his stuff in his box, you know, thinking of all the different memories, all the things that have taken place. It's just sad. Walking out with his box of stuff. Here's some commotion. There's some noise coming from the auditorium. Kids are all gone from school. What's going on? He, He opens the door, and the place is packed out. All his former students and his teachers that he's taught with and, and some that are currently he's teaching with, and they're all there, and they have this, they're, they're standing, they start giving a standing ovation, they got this banner that says, Goodbye, Mr. Holland. He's like totally taken aback as his wife is in on this, you know, and so she, she kind of goes up to the director's podium, and she's kind of making some small talk. She says, we're, we're waiting for the master of ceremonies to come. It's taking us all in, and, and the master of ceremonies arrives. arrives. Uh, she is none other than the, the governor of the state of Oregon. It's a particular girl that was super awkward as a teenager that he had made some investments in, a little clarinet player who ends up becoming the governor of the state. So she gets there, and this is what she says. Mr. Holland had a profound influence in my life, on a lot of lives, I know. And yet... I get the feeling that he considers a great part of his life misspent. Rumor had it he was always working on this symphony of his, and this was going to make him famous and rich, probably both. But Mr. Holland isn't rich, and he isn't famous, at least not outside our little town. So it might be easy for him to think himself a failure, but he'd be wrong, because I think he's achieved a success far beyond Riches and fame. And looking at her former teacher, the, the governor, gestures with a sweeping hand, and she continues. Look around you. There is not a life in this room that you have not touched, 
And each one of us is a better person because of you. We are your symphony, Mr. Holland. We are the melodies and the notes of your opus. And we are the music of your life. And then she hands him the baton. She takes her place in the clarinet section. And for the first time, Mr. Holland hears his opus being played. Friends, I tell you this because the people in your lives right now, it is the music that you make. It is your masterpiece. So engage well and do so in the joy and the strength of the Lord. And what a difference it makes when we are compelled by love. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for just a magnificent letter. And chapter 2, how you show us what it means to be in Christ, to see the gospel living out, being engaging in people's lives with the love of Jesus. And so, Father, would you continue to allow us to take next steps of growth, of investing in people, loving and caring. And for the person or the people that have come here today who have never truly trusted Jesus, and you've got their full attention, would they simply just pray with me and say, God, I turn from myself and my, my sin, and this morning I trust in Jesus as my Savior, and I'm asking him to be the Lord of my life. And God, may our words and our actions truly be a masterpiece to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.